And we have been doing this walk through Acts, looking at some conversion experiences that that happened. And um, we're going to be looking in Acts 19, if you want to flip over there and, and hold that. Uh, one of the things that we have uh, noted, um, John the Baptist, and we're going to be talking a little bit about some of John's disciples today. But John the Baptist always knew his role. Uh, for those of you who have been coming to the Wednesday nights as we have been having a facilitated discussion through the Gospel of John, you realize that John the Baptist has a prominent role in the first three, four chapters of John's book. In John three twenty-two through 36, the apostle writes about John the baptizer. He talks about some of John's disciples were grumbling that Jesus was, was attracting people, that Jesus was baptizing people, and people were going over to them and away from John. But John clearly pointed out to his followers that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the one he was there to herald for, and that they should too be following him. In fact, he gets down around verse 30, uh, and, and John says, he must increase and I must decrease. Beautiful, beautiful thought when it comes to true discipleship that we let Christ become more and more in our life and more and more what we point people to, and we take a lesser and lesser role. And then John the Baptist said this. Houston, can you change the slide? I seem to not have control today. There we go. Thank you so much, Houston. Keep me straight. Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That's John the Baptist. He has a very clear picture of who Jesus is. But John always pointed people to Christ. Now, as we come into Acts 19, actually Acts 18, 19, we run into some of John's disciples. Uh, In Acts 18, as we catch up with uh, uh, there around verse 24, 28, um, Paul's on his third missionary journey, and uh, in the middle of this, there's this aside, and um, Apollos is introduced. And Apollos knew of Jesus. In fact, uh, Luke writes that he spoke correctly about who Jesus was. However, he only knew of the baptism of John. He was one of John's disciples, but he was pushing towards Christ. As we read in there, what we find is Priscilla and Aquila, two um, companion believers of Paul, uh, pulled him aside, pull Apollos aside, and they invited him to this home to explain the way of God more adequately. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I prefer for people to not stand up in public and say, Eric, you're wrong. I would prefer somebody, if, if, I, if, if I happen to be mistaken, to pull me aside and explain to me the way more adequately. Do you hear the softness in that? Do you hear the grace in that? As we read, we see when Apollos came to clarity, he adjusted to the truth and became one of the great defenders of the faith. As Acts 19 opens, Paul has made his way to Ephesus and he encounters more of John's disciples. Read with me if you would. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues, they spoke in other languages, and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Now, numbers mean stuff, don't they? To the Jews, especially the ancient Jews. I'm not going to pursue what does 12 mean here, but I find it a very interesting thought. There is a movement of John's disciples coming to Jesus. Now, if you note, Priscilla... And Aquila and Paul are gentle with those who knew Jesus but did not have a full understanding of who he is. In fact, they show a simple principle. Start where people are and move them to where they need to be. If I can get you to to, to flip the, the, the thing there, I seem to be stuck again. Um, but that's on your, your sheet. Your, the first one on your sheet is start where they are and lead them to where they need to be. You think about um, directions. Are you good at giving directions or are you bad at giving directions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of you know you are, and some of you just think you are, right? <laughs> um, you know, when somebody's lost, it never really helps to harp on the fact that they're lost. Back in 2002, uh, now, for some of you, younger folks that are with us, I want you to realize that 2002 
was still the, the dark ages before the cell phone was like everywhere. And certainly before the average of us could afford what they call smartphones today. We had dumb phones. You either had to flip them, you paid by the minute, that sort of thing. Well, Joy and I moved to East Tennessee. Uh, I left uh, the career that I had in the gas industry and was going to go to seminary to move in such a direction that I would be here today speaking with you. Uh, when we got there, we wanted to make sure that that weekend that we went to church and um, we had decided that we were going to go to the Carter County uh, uh, Church of Christ because we had found out they were there. The only trouble was I didn't have a map. So we went to a convenience store, but they didn't have a map. So I asked the person behind the counter, have you heard of the Carter County Church of Christ? They said, sure, we've heard of it. I said, do you know where it is? Can you tell me where it is? They said, yeah, it's up Stony Creek. I didn't know where Stony Creek was. But, you know, I, I, I accepted that, and I walked out the door and got in the car and told Joy we had to go to another convenience store because they didn't have any maps, and they couldn't tell me where it was. And I went into that store, and you know what I found out? There's no map over there. And I asked somebody, they said, oh, yeah, it's up Stony Creek. I walked outside. There's a police officer in the parking lot. And I said, excuse me, sir, I'm trying to find the Carter County Church of Christ. Can you tell me where it is? He goes, oh, yeah, that's up Stony Creek. When somebody is lost, you know what they need? They need a map. They need clear, simple directions. Even in East Tennessee, the people could tell by my accent I didn't live around there. It would have been more helpful if they would have said, if you go back to the light, you turn right. You go down the big road, you turn right. You go all the way down to the last light and that's obvious in town. You go left in the first light, you go right. And then you're going up Stony Creek and you'll find it. I think sometimes we assume people know more than they really know. For them, saying it's up Stony Creek was perfectly logical because everybody from around there knows where that was. But I didn't know. I needed a map. Directions so I could get to my goal. Now, let me ask you a question. If somebody actually has a map, and they refuse to look at it, what do you do? Well, I can remember when I left Southern Cross, I was really good friends with the IT guy in the office. And um, every now and again, somebody would have a problem in, with a, uh, a program or something would mess up with the computer. So they would fire him off. Uh, an email real quick and he would tend to fire back emails that only had three letters in them. Does anybody know what they are? F-T-M. Excuse me, R, 
T-M. Read the manual. (laughs) Somebody's got a map. They can figure out where they're going. What do they need to do? They need to read the map. Yes? Yeah. They may need to be shown how. That's what Priscilla and Aquila were doing with Apollos. That's what Paul was doing with John's disciples. He took them from where they were to where they needed to be. You see, where Paul gets adamant with believers, when he gets on the stick and gets in their face, is when they're not living by the truth they already know to be doing. That's where we see him getting adamant. Think about the church in Galatia, Galatians, the church in Corinth, especially 1 Corinthians. Think about the discussion that he had with Peter who was preening for the other Jewish Christians instead of accepting the Christians that were right there where he was working that happened to not be Jews. That's when we see Paul getting up in people's faces. But Paul never bashed those who had a partial truth. He helped them to come to clarity. We also see this in in Athens in chapter 17 of Acts where he is looking around, he sees what's going on in Athens. Somebody offers him the opportunity to come and to give his philosophy. And so Paul goes to the Areopagus. If I can get you to change for me, if you would. And over in Acts 17, 22 through 23, just go ahead and write it down. Acts 17, 22 through 23. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you were very religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar to with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Do you hear the softness in that? Do you hear him giving directions, helping him read the map? In Acts 26, where uh, Paul is in chains, he's been entertaining Festus a little bit, uh, King Agrippa's coming and he wants to make a showing, Festus wants to make a showing for King Agrippa. So he has Paul come out and talk to him. And you know what Paul does? Paul comes out, speaks kindly to King Festus and then says, let me tell you about my experience. And he softly tells him to the point that Agrippa's apparently pricked in the heart. Read that story. You'll see what happens. You may have a friend or a family member or a neighbor who knows something of God, 
something about Christ but doesn't understand the whole truth. And friends, there's a place for debate. There's a place for confrontation. But debate and confrontation are not the only nor the best approach in many, many situations. Do you know why? Because the lost need a map. They need clarity. They need somebody to lead them to Christ. Back to Acts 19, uh, verse 3. Um, we see Paul ask this question, and one thing we ought to realize here is there's a difference between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. In fact, not all baptisms are equal. I'm not going to get into a whole deep spill on this right now. I will uh, probably October or November. Uh, I'll do a whole sermon on nothing but baptism, go into some great detail. But just hitting the high points, I just want to remind you that all ancient religions had some form of ceremonial washings. We see that with the Jews even through the Old Testament. The Jews actually practiced baptism of proselytes, those who were not Jews, who wanted to be Jews. It was part of the process of becoming a Jew. It was a, a change of nationality that happened, uh, and baptism was a part of that. John's baptism, we see in Scripture that it is a, a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. Luke 3.3, 3, Acts 19.4, both of those talk about that. The radical thing that John was doing is he was baptizing Jews. We can get into that some other time. Jesus' baptism is a fundamental shift involving both of those. When we are baptized into Christ, we change nationality. We are no longer of this earth. We are no longer of this realm, but we are citizens in a heavenly realm. Amen? And it is a baptism of, of repentance and forgiveness. And it is where we get the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit and the hope of eternal life. I mentioned last week or the week before that there are 13 cases in Scripture where a specific person or a specific people group uh, are mentioned about coming to a point of belief and being baptized into Christ. And 10 of those are here in Acts. And in every single one, when somebody came to clarity about Christ, in every case, they believed and were baptized into Christ. Even Paul followed that pattern in Damascus. You see, Paul has a high view of baptism. He values that. We can see this throughout Scripture. In Acts 9, around verse 18, Paul's on the way to Damascus. He gets blinded by the light. Jesus talks to him. He goes. He fasts for at least three, maybe seven days before Ananias is sent to him to talk to him. You want to read that whole story? Acts 9, please make certain that you do that. So Ananias comes and he opens his eyes, and you know what happens? 
he immediately gets up and is baptized before he breaks his fast. He comes to clarity. He gives his life to Christ. Now, why would he do that very first? Well, Paul talks about this in Acts 22 as he is telling somebody his story. And he tells us that Ananias told him, and now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Ananias told him that baptism is for the forgiveness of sin. I don't know about you, I think that's important. Paul thought it was important. In fact, Paul thought it was so important over in Ephesus 4, in the letter that he wrote, Ephesus 4, uh, 4 through 6, Paul says there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and in all and through all, right? Why does Paul put this thing called baptism in such a high place with all of these other things that none of us would ever argue are unimportant. Why would we think Paul thought baptism was unimportant? He puts it right here with the main things of our faith. Hard for me to conclude that just looking at this list, that baptism is not necessary. Oh, Romans 3. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Do you hear what Paul is saying? That baptism into Christ gives us the hope of resurrection. I think he thinks it's important. Biblically, we've talked about this a few months ago. Biblically, Christian baptism is into Christ. It is not into an organization. It is not into this group of Christians. It is into Christ. Paul, over in Galatians 27 and 28, tells the church in Galatia that when we are baptized into Christ, it is like we put Christ on as you would put on a shirt or a coat or a tunic. We clothe ourselves with him. Isn't that a beautiful picture that Christ comes and surrounds us, engulfs us? 
And when we put on Christ, and Christ is what everyone should see, do you know what that does? It makes us all equal. Regardless of skin color, or ancestry, or language, or political bent, or male, or female, or rich, or poor, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. When God sees us, he sees a soul that he created and he was willing to die for. We're the ones that get distracted by all of this exterior stuff. Christian baptism is not a rite of passage. It's not an organizational initiation, but the sealing of covenant. Uh, We talked about this actually last December, December 22nd, because I went back and looked at my file and made sure I actually talked about it. We talked about Abraham making covenant with God and how the Hebrew word Brit means to cut. We talked about how when God made covenant with himself for Abraham's benefit, he had him take animals and cut them in half and it created this blood path. And then God himself walked the blood path. We talked about that ancient ritual that was not only a part of the Jews, but it was part of many of the Mesopotamian cultures, right? You see, God, when he died on the cross, his blood of sacrifice becomes the blood path for us. And baptism is that point where we, metaphorically, but where we pass through the blood and we come into covenant with him. A rite of passage kind of ceremony into an organization does absolutely nothing. But making covenant with the supreme God of the universe does everything. It covers us when we make him Lord of our life and we accept the saving grace that God did through the cross. Baptism into Christ also gives us the promise of the Holy Spirit. Peter on the day of Pentecost, when he was asked what it was they needed to do, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of God himself. To lead, to guide, to admonish, to encourage. Not to beat us up but to help us to be more than we will ever be on our own, to make us vessels of his holiness. That Holy Spirit wasn't given just at Pentecost. 
It was given to the Samaritans. It was given to Cornelius. It was given to John's disciples. And we have all been given that same spirit. People ask, how do I know? Paul talks about that too. How do you know you've been confirmed that you're in Christ that the spirit of Christ, the spirit of truth, the spirit of God is in you. He gives us a couple of really good places to, to look, like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, where he talks about Galatians 5.22, when he talks about what the spirit does, and if somebody's got the spirit, these are the actions they do. There are places in Scripture we can go. And honestly, if we are not exuding what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, the offspring, the product of the Spirit being in our life, something needs to change, and it's not the Spirit. Maybe something in our life that needs adjustment. I include 1 Corinthians 13 in that because that is where Paul tries to talk about the most excellent thing that the Holy Spirit does for us, and that is to give us the ability to love the way that Christ God loves, purely for the good of the other person, without any thought of self. 1 Corinthians 13 Do you love the way that Paul tells us the Spirit enables us to love? I got to show you this. I came across this picture this week. Um, This is in Asia. I don't want to be too specific of where it is uh, because... um, This is behind what we would call an iron curtain, okay? These four men, uh, towards the end of last year, uh, this this is a picture from um, uh, uh, a mission that the Salem Church of Christ, where I was for 14 years, it's a mission that they have supported for well over 30 years. Um, And these four men are soldiers of a country that is hostile to Christians. And they're being baptized into Christ because they came to clarity as to who God is and who Jesus is and who they are and their need for Jesus in their life. And so these four men buried the old self in the old life of sin and were raised to a newness of life. Oh, by the way, it wasn't just these four soldiers. It was 67 of them that were baptized into Christ that day. The blood of the cross is still changing 
lives. And, and this decision that they made, it, it reflects what's happening in, in Acts 19 because they came to a point of clarity and they acted on that knowledge. Because you see, understanding truth leads to submission and to life change. About, and it happened here with John's 12's disciples. You see, friends, truth does not change. Our understanding of it does change. But the truth is always the truth. And friends, the truth is you and I need to be baptized into Christ to receive forgiveness, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the hope of heaven. There's just no substitute. In fact, Peter tells us that there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Amen? Father God, we thank you for these men in Asia who were willing to stand up and make a stand for you at a place and a time when to do so risks their very life. And we thank you, Lord, that Paul was willing to do that, that Peter was willing to risk his life for the truth. We thank you, Father, for the example of these 12 disciples of John who, hearing truth and hearing it clearly explained, were willing to adjust to the truth of who Jesus is. I pray, Father, that this day, that this year, that this time where we are focusing on not just being your church and gathering the worship, but we're focusing on being your stewards, your ambassadors, your voice in this community. That we won't point people to Stony Creek, but we'll give them a map of how they can find life eternal. We thank you for your son and for these moments. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.